Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Ordinarily, in an episode of this show, we bring you a conversation with a researcher in the biology of aging or an entrepreneur in longevity biotech. But today, our guests represent a very different kind of thought leadership in the policy space around longevity. We're joined by two leaders of the Alliance for Longevity Initiatives, A4LI, the first 501c4 nonprofit organization focused on advocating for government-sponsored initiatives and policies to increase healthy human lifespan. Sonia Arison, the chair of A4LI, will be familiar to many of our listeners as the author of 100 Plus, How the Coming Age of Longevity Will Change Everything. She's also an angel investor and a board member of the Foresight Institute. Dylan Livingston, the founder and president of the organization, has a background in political organizing. BioAge Labs is proud to be a platinum sponsor of A4LI, and our CEO, Kristen Fortney, serves on the board. Sonia Arison and Dylan Livingston of the Alliance for Longevity Initiatives, thank you so much for joining us on Translating Aging. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. Thank you, Chris. Super excited to be here. Before we talk about your work at A4LI, I'd like to explore what brought the two of you individually into the area of longevity and longevity science. Sonia, if you'd like, please go first. Sure. You know, I can answer that question in two ways. Personally, I got interested in longevity because both of my grandparents on my father's side, my grandmother and my grandfather, were really healthy into uh, pretty old ages. And not only that, they were active. They were involved in people's lives. They started volunteer organizations to help older people. My grandfather edited a newspaper and, you know, did a bunch of things. And so I had this personal example of what healthy longevity or, I hate to say healthy aging. In fact, I'm not going to say that. Healthy longevity looks like. Those were my role models. And I figured everybody should get to live like that. So personally, that's kind of where I was coming from. And then professionally, you know, around the year 2000, which is a long time ago now, 22 <laughs> years ago, I can't, kind of freaks me out. Don't remind me. Yeah, right? When the first draft of the human genome was announced, I noticed a lot of my um, Silicon Valley tech friends who were like coders, computer coders, suddenly getting interested in biotech. And, you know, this because they saw it as something that required their skills now. You know, now that there was a human code, we could start... Uh, coding biology and, and fixing ourselves. So professionally, I got super interested in longevity around the year 2000 because of that. Dylan? I've been aware of this longevity biotech space for most of my life since about 2010 through my father. It was always super interesting to me, but you know, as a child, you don't really fully grasp what aging is or the magnitude of what stopping it would mean. I kind of tucked it away in the back of my mind and figured it was you know something that someone else would figure out. I got involved in politics during college. Uh, I went to a school right outside of Philadelphia and got wrapped up in the anti-Trump fervor. I worked for various Democratic Party-backed organizations and ultimately worked for the Biden campaign in 2020. Uh, and it was during 2020, uh, specifically when COVID hit, that I got interested and passionate about the longevity movement. I was in New York during the height of the COVID pandemic. And if you were in New York too, you know how scary it was. My 93-year-old grandfather moved in with my family and Fortunately, he was okay, didn't get COVID, but watching him watch his friends suffer firsthand was really tough. And I also saw my grandfather sort of give up and become hopeless as he felt that COVID would inevitably get him too, you know? I remember 
feeling angry about how unfair the whole situation was. My grandfather would die from COVID as a 93-year-old man, but, you know, as a 22-year-old, I would easily beat it. And, you know, there was no difference in our habit, right? My grandfather probably takes better care uh, of himself than I do. The only difference in the outcome of us, you know, having COVID is age, right? So that's when I got involved and realized that I needed to make this uh, my life's mission to do kind of what I can to help the longevity movement advance. You know, that frustration in that moment that I felt that, you know, continues to kind of push me forward today. Thank you both so much for those personal stories. You know, Dylan, I was thinking when you were telling us about your grandfather, at BioAge, we think a lot about the fact that COVID is essentially a disease of aging. And if there are a way to revert the aged immune system to the same state that it's in when we were young, we would have had a very different pandemic. I don't want to digress too much, but BioAge recently had an interesting announcement in this regard, but that is a subject for another time and possibly another podcast. So let's move forward. Now that we know your origin stories, how did the two of you come together at A4LI? Maybe Dylan can first talk about the founding of the organization and then Sonia about how she became chair. I had this idea after I finished my time with the Biden campaign, probably February of 2021. I finished up with the Biden campaign. And we, you know, we did a good job in Pennsylvania and I developed a large political Rolodex because of it. And, you know, I also had this newfound passion for advancing longevity medicine. So I kind of wanted to combine the two. And, and I did some research and all of the nonprofits in the longevity space were set up as 501c3 organizations. I'll just give a little background on the difference between 501c3 and what we are, a 501c4. A C3 has the advantage of giving donors the option to write off their donation on their personal taxes, which is a huge uh, fundraising advantage, right? But the downside is C3s aren't up to be political in any way, shape, or form. C4s, which is what AFRELI is, and I'll note that there weren't any before us for the longevity community, has the opposite type of situation. So we don't get those tax write-offs, but we're allowed to engage with policymakers. And my guess for why all the nonprofits thus far have been set up as C3s is because the space was kind of fringe. So to convince people to support, they needed a financial incentive. But now that the field has grown to the point where political action is needed and there are enough players in the field with funds to make it happen, we're in a different spot. So back to the story, I had this idea back in February 2021, and I used LinkedIn profusely. I connected with as many people in the longevity space as possible. LinkedIn is one heck of a tool, I'll tell you that. And, uh, you know, I connected with all of our board members sometime between February and June of 2021. Uh, and we had our first official board meeting in August. And so Sonia has been intimately involved since the organization's inception. And I'm really happy that she is able to be the chair of the board because uh, her leadership and guidance has been absolutely crucial. So, you know, maybe Sonia, you can take it from there. I was very happy when Dylan popped up on my radar. I got a Email from Christine Peterson, who, as many of your listeners know, founded the Foresight Institute, which I'm also on the board of. She sent me an email and she said, you know, there's this guy, his name is Dylan Livingston, and he wants to start a 501c4 for longevity. She's like, I don't really know anything about him, but I had a quick conversation with him and he doesn't seem crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. It's an important qualification for political work. (laughs) Right, exactly. And so so she said, do you want me to make an introduction? Are you interested in meeting him? And so I said, yes, sure. Tentatively, I said, sure, because, you know, I have been approached by other people to start this kind of organization before. And I've always wanted to be part of something like this because... I felt personally guilty. And that's because if you know anything about me, I actually have a very long background in public policy. My first job out of college after getting my master's degree in political science and economics was at a think tank. And I worked there and then I worked for a foundation which did public policy work. And then 
in both ends of those in Canada. And then I came to the United States and worked at the Pacific Research Institute, which is a public policy think tank. I worked there for, oh gosh, I don't know, over 10 years, probably 12 years, something like that. So I have a really long background in public policy. And I always felt guilty that as somebody who knows a lot about public policy and somebody who knows a lot about longevity, given the book I wrote, it was horrible that I wasn't doing anything because this was a big hole that needed to be filled, that nobody was talking about longevity at the policy level and at the political level, and it needed to be done. And so I had my fingers crossed and uh, responded to Dylan's email and said, yes, let's have a conversation. And I was pleasantly surprised that he was not crazy. (laughs) And it was actually quite rational and had some great suggestions and had already reached out to a lot of the right people. So I agreed to come on board. And here we are. That's fantastic. So you have the motive and Dylan gave you the opportunity. Yes, it all came together. Well, let's get down and talk about the details. So A4LI seems to be aligned with something that our listeners will be familiar with, which is the geroscience hypothesis. The idea that because aging plays a major role in many, if not all, chronic diseases, directly addressing aging will prevent or alleviate multiple chronic diseases. So from that standpoint, what is the mission of A4LI? And I guess to frame that more specifically, what's the unmet need that the organization is going to address? Officially, our mission is to promote social and political action around the issues of combating age-related chronic conditions and increasing our number of healthy, disease-free years. But if you wanted to boil it down or simplify it, you could basically just say that we're advocating that the government push forward life expectancy year over year, right? That's the ultimate number that we're trying to increase. That's the goal there, if you want to boil it down. Essentially, A4LI will be establishing a line of communication between the longevity industry and elected officials. But we're able to do that, like I said, through our 501c4 designation. Uh, it's you know completely unique to the longevity community because obviously there are no others in the ecosystem. And you know this channel of communication is, as I'm sure both of you know, is an unmet need. Right? There's at this point no way to you know reach politicians in a way that is repeatable. So, you know, this will be a kind of path that we're forging so that other longevity influencers and scientists and investors have a way to talk to, you know, a group of interested elected officials. Opening this channel of communication uh, will allow the longevity industry, you know, the biotech companies and whatnot to better relay regulatory and, you know, general needs to policymakers who, you know, set the rules around the environment that they operate in. So. That's kind of a simplification there, though. Well, we'll get into more details. Sonia, did you have anything to add at the moment? Well, just that, you know, the industry is finally ready for this. I've been involved in this area for a long time. And there was a time where longevity science was just science. And it needed funding back then as well. Scientists do need funding. They do. They always need funding. And it's very, very important. But longevity science has come to the point now where we're seeing, as a lot of your listeners know, and in fact, BioAge is a perfect example, we're seeing a lot of companies that are growing in this space. And because of that, we need the rules of the game, which are controlled by the politicians to catch up with reality. And that reality is that there's a lot of longevity companies out there who are doing some really cool things that are going to extend our health spans. So we need to make sure that the atmosphere is right for that to thrive. Okay, so what are the obstacles to getting this done right now? And how does A4LI plan to help overcome them? If that goal is referring to establishing the line of communication, there aren't many obstacles standing in the way of establishing this line. 
we've done some initial outreach to politicians. And, you know, our goal to kind of make this a line of communication official is by setting up a longevity caucus, you know, an interested group of 20 to 40 Congress people who understand the geroscience approach and are interested in moving it forward. The obstacles standing in the way of that are very limited. We've seen some enthusiasm for both sides of the aisle, but the obstacles that we're looking to kind of overcome or for the longevity community are the lack of clinical pathway, the fact that the community is underfunded in terms of government funds and resources. And then also there's just a general information gap that the public seems to not understand the, the possibilities and potentials of these drugs that are targeting aging. So, you know, we look to kind of educate not only politicians, but also the voting public on what's possible. Okay. I want to drill down on each of those in turn. Let's start with the idea of the lack of a clinical trial pathway. So if I understand correctly, this relates to the idea that the FDA and other regulatory agencies, in order for a company to bring a drug to market, the drug has to satisfy a few criteria. And principle among those is that it treat a disease that's recognized as such by the regulatory body. So is that what you mean by the lack of a clinical trial pathway? That longevity, it doesn't necessarily fit neatly into that model? Yes, exactly. A devil's advocate might say, how is it a bad thing? Like, how is it a bad thing to force companies to make drugs that actually treat specific diseases? Another way to put it is, what are we missing out on within the existing regulatory framework? It's probably not a good thing that this is how the regulatory body is set up. But, you know, it's not like companies are scared to kind of step in this space because of this pathway. It doesn't look like it's a major deterrent at this point. I think most people would agree that the major issue with these trials is that there isn't agreed upon endpoints in which to compare drug efficacy, right? And we don't want to overthrow the existing longevity ecosystem because there are a lot of companies right now with you know drugs in the pipeline that are doing great work in the way the rules are set up now. What we really want to do is get the FDA to agree that aging can be modified through drug intervention despite the lack of clarity on the endpoints and then act on it. And so, you know, to start this process, we're considering advocating to create an analog to the RMAT pathway, the Regenerative Medicine Advanced Therapeutics pathway, but for longevity medicines. It would be sort of a temporary fix, but it would help the most promising longevity companies as decided by the FDA get special treatment in the short term to, you know, help boost their chances at success. But, you know, in the longer term, we want these companies who get accepted under the LMAT pathway to work side by side with the FDA to come to an agreement on endpoints for future longevity drug trials. So, you know, that seems like a reasonable transition, but, you know, we're still working on the details before we announce anything officially. But that's the kind of pathway we want to create. We don't want to, you know, throw the whole ecosystem into whack but we want to provide a way forward for these companies to, you know, help them get the treatment they deserve and need. Right. I think that's a good point to make, Dylan, that our organization does not create any kind of zero-sum game. It's not like if we get longevity medicines, a pathway through the FDA, it doesn't uh, delegitimize anything for diabetes, heart disease, or dementia, any of the diseases of aging. And if there's a company that's legitimately just going after one of those diseases, very focused, they should still do that. And they are doing that. The problem today, and, and I see this a lot in my work when I'm investing in longevity companies, is that uh, there'll be a company and they've got this great anti-aging idea. And they'll come to me and they'll say, oh, this is, this is what we're going to do. This is our small molecule or this is our procedure. And they'll say, okay, so then we just got to figure out how to get through the FDA. So we'll either be a diabetes drug or we'll be a heart disease drug. Those are kind of like the two that they typically go after. And it just feels really disingenuous. It, it's kind of 
sad that we have to force company leaders to sort of lie about what they're doing just to get through the FDA. I mean, yes, if you're tackling aging, you're also going to have an impact on the diseases of aging. So it's not lying. I guess what I mean is they shouldn't have to twist themselves. We should just allow them to really go after the goal that they're going after. And now it's possible because, you know, there's, you know, maybe we can have biomarkers. There's a whole bunch of different ways that the FDA could do it. And I know that the FDA is open to this idea too. So, and then the second point I would make is it also legitimizes the field if they don't have to be in the closet, (laughs) as it were, about what they're actually doing. It legitimizes the field and they can say, yes, we are a health span extending company or an anti-aging company. We're trying to get people to live longer and healthier lives. And we're proud about that. Sonia, while you were making both of those points, I was reminded of a joke that Ben Caymans, who's the CEO of Spring Therapeutics, made on Twitter a couple of months ago. He said that a lot of companies in this space have to be indications on the streets and longevity between the sheets. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Yeah. And I think that's a really good summary of this exact problem, where if I can just say back to you what you were saying, because I think it's so important for the listeners, it's okay for a company to be a diabetes company or heart disease company or an oncology company. What we're seeing here is, what I hear you saying is, it should be okay for a company to say, we're a longevity company. Exactly. Yeah. There can be an additional category and nobody loses. I couldn't agree more. So let's move on to the funding question. So, I mean, I know any number of high-powered professors in big universities who have big, rich labs with an army of postdocs and seemingly an infinite supply of money. So in what sense is the biology of aging underfunded? So I'm sure Sonia attests to this a little more, but I even get this being, you know, not an investor, but I get people coming to me looking for kind of foundational funds to get their, you know, project or, you know, drug off the ground. Preclinical companies are coming to VCs like Sonia and asking for funds to kind of get their company started. And all of these, right? Increasing the amount of grant money available would pretty much do away with that problem and would allow VCs actually to focus on company building instead of seeding ideas that may or may not work. And also, you know, considering that the government commits billions to treat the diseases associated with aging, like I think it's 5.6 billion to the National Cancer Institute compared to something along the lines of 400 million to the NIA Division of Aging Biology, it kind of makes sense to commit more funds to the aging space. You know, as I'm sure everybody knows it, treating aging acts as a prophylactic to, you know, other age-related diseases, including cancer. So, you know, think that the government would want to fund that more, and, and they should because of the massive impact that a drug that treats aging could have. And it comes down to the category problem again, where it's like, well, you know, there's a lot of government funding for cancer and there's a lot of go- and government funding for diabetes and tons for Alzheimer's. But if you're just simply an aging company, then you you kind of like get lost in the shuffle. And there's a lot of really innovative people doing work in the health span extension space. And they're sort of getting passed over by the way that the system's set up. It's a system failure. So you're saying that there's both a deficit at the level of government support for primary research in academic settings, but there's also a dearth of funding in the investment sphere for emerging longevity biotech companies. Am I hearing you right? Well, the investment funding has really picked up, actually. I would say... I would say so. Yes, there's a lot more activity on the investment side than there is on the research side. There's a lot more excitement on the investment side because investors can see that some of these things are really working and that they're sort of multi-disease 
solutions because if they're going after the diseases of aging, then they can hit more than one at once. And that's really important. So let me just play devil's advocate again. And I'm going to try to make an argument from the side of the aisle where I don't spend a lot of mental time. I'm going to frame it like this. Investment in longevity biotech is rising rapidly. New companies are being founded on what feels like a weekly basis. And there's been a major influx of talent and big players in the field. There was a pretty high-powered and high-profile launch of a longevity-associated startup last month that had about $3 billion in initial funding. So a critic might say, why focus on government policy at all when it seems like the private sector has recognized the problem and they're just going to take care of it? Like it or not. (laughs) And I know being here in Silicon Valley, I know a lot of people who would like to just pretend the government doesn't exist and just go on creating things and pushing them out to market. But the reality is, is that the government regulates things. And so if the pathway to getting things approved isn't as smooth as it could be, we won't get our therapies as fast as we could. And then there's the second element that I mentioned before of legitimacy. You know, if the government doesn't acknowledge this field that's booming right now, it's like we're trying to keep something in the closet that shouldn't be. And it's important for the government to recognize it and to make rational rules surrounding its rollout. So even if funding is coming in from the private sector, biotech companies still stand to gain from A4LI's efforts because they're going to get smoother regulatory environment and potentially greater legitimacy for the products and ideas that they're developing. So, I mean, that's a real argument in favor, if I'm a biotech company, why I'd want to support A4LI in material terms. Absolutely. Yes. All right, let's talk about the third and final aspect of the obstacles that Dylan talked about before. Let's talk about the information gap. Dylan, could you say a little bit more about that? When I tell people what I do for a living, they go, what do you do? You know, it's uh, longevity as much as it's blown up in the last few years. It's still, you know, a bit of a fringe issue, right? And uh, it shouldn't be that way because, you know, aging affects everybody. Everybody should be aware of uh, potential to treat aging and, you know, should be interested in pushing for the development of these kind of drugs. So the way that we're going to address this information gap, though, is by making longevity a topic of discussion in politics itself, and then by going on a more general public persuasion campaign. There's power in getting the word longevity said by an elected official. It helps raise awareness. Creating a longevity caucus and using, you know, the word longevity And, you know, having the members discuss the issues around longevity helps raise awareness. Proposing legislation with the word longevity in it and having Congress debate, that raises awareness. So getting politicians involved will help raise awareness. People listen to their elected official. So we want them to start speaking about it. And then also, you know, as A4LI grows, we're looking to actively go on public persuasion campaigns, which includes mass advertisements, you know, large public events, uh, things like that. And that part, let me just say, becomes even more important as we look to pass a larger piece of legislation centered around longevity. In order to get a majority of Congress on board without, you know, making longevity a partisan issue, we need advertising in current 50 states. So, you know, the level of funds that will take, you know, we're going to have to work up to unless we get lucky and, so, you know, or something in the next few months. But by simply doing what other advocacy efforts do, you know, that is, public persuasion campaigns through advertising, I think we can really open some ears up and get people focused on this space a little more. I'm getting a pretty clear sense of how you're planning on closing the longevity gap, both in politics and in terms of the general public. And from our conversation earlier, we've got a sense of the kind of obstacles that you're up against. So now I want to carry on with the momentum we have and move into a discussion of what A4LI is actually going to do. So you talked a little bit about the education campaigns. Your other initiatives 
fall into three categories, three R's, refocus, research, and reform. We can use that as a structure for the ensuing conversation, but overall, I just want to ask the question, what's the plan? For refocus, our goal there is to change the conversations being had on Capitol Hill. We're going to do that first and foremost by creating a longevity caucus. And I think I may have mentioned we're moving forward full steam ahead on that. But we also want to do that by encouraging politicians to promote other statistics of national well-being aside from GDP. That's namely healthy life expectancy. The longevity dividend says that if we focus on increasing increasing healthy life expectancy, our GDP will skyrocket as a result. However, you can increase GDP without increasing health span. And you can look at the U.S. over the last few years as an example of that. So we want to change the conversation and promote increases in healthy lifespan first and foremost and, you know, get Congress talking about that. Research centers on encouraging more funds to be focused on geroscience and regenerative medicine focused on treating aging. And we're calling for that to happen simply through two means. One, by increasing the amount of funding to the NIA Division of Aging Biology for grants and whatnot. And then for ARPA-H funds to be committed to geroscience-focused projects and research managers. And then finally, reform focuses on how to deal with the FDA and the drug development, you know, the process in its totality. We want to create a path for longevity companies in the FDA in the short term. And, you know, hopefully we can achieve that by creating the RMAT analog. And then we want to work with the FDA in the long term to establish these biomarkers for, you know, real aging trials. But we also want to more generally support increasing the speed of drug development in a variety of ways. That can be anything from, you know, new innovative drug discovery methods like organ on a chip technology to, you know, something as simple as, you know, increasing the amount of funds to the FDA so, you know, they can hire more reviewers. We more generally want to just increase drug development efficiency and decrease the time in that regard. You've mentioned RMAT a couple of times, and I wanted to give you a chance to describe it a little bit for our listeners who might not be familiar, and then describe how you think the LMAT, a term that you mentioned also once before, would work by analogy. RMAT, the Regenerative Medicine Advanced Therapy designation, is given to eligible regenerative medicine therapies that are approved by the FDA. And they can include anything from cell therapy to, you know, tissue engineered products to anything along those lines. The RMAT pathway is intended for drugs that modify or reverse a serious life-threatening disease or condition. So uh, the RMAT pathway kind of excludes these longevity companies in a way because aging is not considered a life-threatening disease. So by definition almost excludes them. So we want to basically have a similar pathway for longevity companies, but, you know, take out life-threatening disease or condition and put in aging in general, right? Or an age-related disease or uh, disability that comes up through aging, the aging process. So, and the advantage of this pathway is you get things like, uh, you know, fast-track designation, breakthrough therapy designation. You get to meet with FDA reviewers more frequently than other companies. You just get special status within the FDA. And Hopefully we can get this going because it's kind of a compromise between, you know, the existing structure and, you know, what the longevity community wants. It's not quite aging being treated as a disease, but it's pretty close to it. And again, this is a very beta idea. So, you know, please check back in a few weeks when we uh, more officially hammer down the details here. I think it's great to talk about ideas when they're not fully baked yet. Absolutely. That's when they're the most malleable. That's when input can be the most valuable. So I think it's great that you're sharing these ideas with us. Sonia, did you have anything to add about the kind of general broad plan for A4LA? I think Dylan summarized things really well. I worked fairly closely with him. 
I think he did a great job sort of letting listeners know what we're thinking right now and where we're planning to go. So what has happened so far? The organization is still very new, even though it feels like I've been at this for a while now. We're still very much less than a year old. I like to say that we're in the toddler phase. (laughs) (laughs) We're the toddler version of the A4LI. We're going to grow quickly, I hope, with all the people who are interested in this area and become a teenager and then an adult. So we're working our way up and hopefully people will help fund us along the way because that'll help us grow faster. (laughs) The Longevity Caucus is our first priority here, right? We don't really think it's worth pushing any specific initiative until there's an established audience at Congress to help us kind of push these initiatives. And like I said, we didn't officially incorporate until June of 2021 and didn't even have our first board meeting until the very end of August. So, you know, we're really only kind of six months old here. And in that effort, in that time, we've been able to already get the beginning stages of this caucus together. Like I think I mentioned, we have, you know, our potential co-chair for the Longevity Caucus on the Democratic side already lined up. We've already made that pitch and he's fully on board. I'll give the audience a little bit of a hint of who it is, but, you know, check back with us in the next few weeks because we're going to be doing something public with that announcement of support. And what about a co-chair from the other side of the aisle? That's on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, we have strong ties with Newt Gingrich, who your listeners might not know this, is a secret futurist. And he's helping us make inroads with the right there. So he has a few connections in Congress who he's confident would be interested in co-chairing too. Specifically, some of the members of the Doctors Caucus, you know, are people who he's uh, interested in kind of connecting us with. So I think we should have our co-chairs publicized by sometime this summer, you know, hopefully. Knock on wood. I just knocked on wood. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. But, you know, so far, I would say we're kind of ahead of schedule here in terms of actually setting up this caucus. And, you know, we've also, I mean, you know, publicly gotten on record multiple former Congress people like we got Newt Gingrich and Steve Israel to publicly support the cause. This month, we're having a Democratic candidate for Congress on. We're starting to get politicians and policymakers and potential Congress people to come out and support what we're doing. And so that in of itself helps legitimize the field. Back to Sonia's point uh, before, that's a big part of this. We want to help legitimize the field. So, you know, we've already succeeded in getting a bunch of policymakers to kind of sign on and show their support. And, you know, we're expecting a lot more of that in the next year or so. And then just in terms of the longevity caucus, you know, like I said, we're kind of ahead of schedule here. Once we get the co-chairs, filling out the rest of the caucus isn't too difficult. But, you know, historically speaking, the midterm elections after a new president has been elected is generally not too good for the incumbent's party. Generally, there's a lot of turnover. So, you know, it kind of makes sense for us to wait or, you know, do this after the new Congress has been sworn in. But what I was originally saying is we can get this done in the next couple months here. I really, truly believe that. But realistically, we're going to get this caucus established sometime in the beginning, middle of 2023 is my best guess. And I think this is a good time for me to just chime in and say one of the things that was really important to me about getting involved in this is that it remained bipartisan. And so far, we've managed to do a really good job of having people on both sides of the aisle. This really, truly may be the one issue left in the entire world where both sides (laughs) will agree. Would like to live longer and healthier. It's very simple. And everybody can agree on that. 
I'm really happy about that because it's one of the few areas where it's nice to see people coming together. I'm glad to hear that the effort is being so well received in Washington. Sonia, I want to follow up with you a little bit further. How is this going over in Silicon Valley? Well, like I mentioned before, people in Silicon Valley don't tend to think about politics all that. They don't think about DC very often. They're very busy focusing on their startups and their burn rate and how much time they have left to run their company. (laughs) (laughs) I think people in Silicon Valley are interested and excited and are just sort of waiting to see what's going to happen and, you know, just how interested Congress might be. It kind of reminds me of, I came to Silicon Valley in 1999, kind of at the height of the internet boom. And it was always described as the wild west because the government hadn't really gotten involved yet. There were like no internet taxes and there's all these different things going on. And there were a lot of people who didn't want government involved back then. I think the attitude has changed more now because now they realize like there's no getting away from it. It's not like you're going to create some society inside the U.S. that's immune or some industry that's immune to government oversight at some point when you become big enough. And, you know, maybe it's a sign that you've become big enough and that you're successful enough that government pays attention. And in some ways, it's a good thing as long as it's done right. We're getting close to the end of the interview, and I want to ask a couple of closing up questions. The first one is, our listeners are pretty diverse, but they're united by a core belief in the soundness of the geroscience hypothesis and the idea that longevity biotech has the potential to revolutionize healthcare and even the process of aging itself. So speaking now to the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are listening to this episode of the podcast, what can we do to help A4LI? If I'm being completely honest, contribute to us. <laughs> That's the best you can do. Become a member if you're an individual or become a sponsor if you're a company. Like I said, we're a 501c4 advocacy organization, and we're more or less up against other 501c4 organizations when it comes to getting the ear of policymakers. And many of these 501c4s are significantly better funded than we are. What's the old saying? Money talks and bullshit walks, right? So, and if you want to see the issue that you care about most, which is aging, being pushed in, you know, the halls of Congress and, you know, talked about by politicians and supported more by the U.S. government, you should contribute to A4LI so we can work to make that happen. You know, A4LI's capacity to lobby and create change is unfortunately very correlated to our fundraising levels. So let's imagine that in five years, you're both looking back and you say, we have had a great success at A4LI. I want to hear from each of you. What does that success look like? Success in the near term is honestly getting this longevity caucus together. And Sonia might disagree with me, but if that's all we do, I personally can be happy because I truly believe this caucus is an important step. It gives longevity, you know, an audience in Congress and, you know, that this caucus can be contacted and used by anybody in the community. You know, we're setting it up so that the community can use it. And like I said, it also, and I think Sonia said, it also legitimizes the space, right? But in the long term, we really want to get a longevity initiatives bill passed, something kind of like the National Nanotech Initiative that was signed, I think, in 03 or 04. It could include many of our other initiatives in that one piece of legislation and with one swoop of the pen would create a much better ecosystem for longevity biotech companies to operate. But ultimately, you know, I don't think we're going to be done with this effort for a very long time. Increasing funding and changing regulations to help find a treatment for aging is, is just step one. 
The next step is working to convince everybody to take the drug, convincing insurance companies to cover said drug, and then actually distributing it consistently to everyone so that we can truly achieve the benefits of the longevity dividend, right? The longevity dividend doesn't talk about half the population taking a longevity drug, right? So we really want everybody to buy on to this geroscience approach. And then the step after that is working to realign our institutions and society to account for the fact that most people are going to live a lot longer and much better health, right? We need to reimagine Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid, things like that. Even things like college and education. And I mean, I might be paraphrasing Sonia's book at this point, but you know, really everything is going to change with the introduction of an effective uh, longevity drug. So, you know, we need to help the government and institutions prepare for that. So we have our work cut out for us here. And, you know, I don't anticipate saying, okay, we're done for a while. But, you know, if we can get this longevity caucus together in the short term, I think that that would be a huge win. Nice summary, Dylan. I like that. I agree with everything you said. I'm looking forward to the day when, uh, I was just thinking to myself, you know, some politician tries to take credit for this, right? That a longevity drug hits the market and is super effective. And then we have all these people living much healthier lives. The version of when Al Gore tried to take credit for inventing the internet. <laughs> Someday, I am going to sit back in my chair and be really happy when some politician tries to take credit because it means we've really made a lot of progress at that point. Yeah, once somebody starts stealing your idea, you know that it's gold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for the fascinating discussion. Sonia and Dylan, thank you both so much for joining us. Absolutely. Great to be here. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.